Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, headlines for over 70 years have touted the special relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States of America. Could it be that the glue holding that together was not the 14 British prime ministers or the 13 American presidents? Could the master diplomat working to keep that all together really have been Queen Elizabeth II? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. We're really pleased to have joining us on the program today. Oliver Weissman is the deputy editor of The Spectator World and uh, wrote a great piece in Political uh, titled The Not-So-Secret Weapon in the Special Relationship. Uh, Oliver, we appreciate you joining us today. Great to be with you. So as you uh, looked at this very interesting secret, not-so-secret weapon uh, of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, obviously, she she uh, spanned everything from uh, as a child, charming President Truman, uh, all the way to uh, interactions with former President Trump and President Joe Biden. Uh, what is it that she brought to the table and uh, what is it that we should be looking for as that uh, ultimate transition to King Charles III is beginning in terms of that relationship between the U.S. and the U.K.? Uh, well, I would say there's, there's two things, really. Uh... To, to, to focus on. The first is, uh, especially towards the end of her reign, uh, you know, the fact that she had met so many presidents, probably met more, met and interacted with more U.S. presidents than anyone who's ever lived, I think. Um, you know, that made her this kind of um, embodiment of history, not just of Britain, but of, of America and of, of, of just history more generally. So she sort of was, you could see why even presidents would be awestruck meeting her. Uh, and so that gave her this kind of um, kind of superpower, as it were, to, to, to kind of charm the most powerful man in the world in the form of the president. So that was that was one thing. And then I think the second thing is, you know, she was a um, she was a, a British monarch who, who really loved uh, America, loved, uh, you know, the, the most powerful former colony of her, that her great, great, great grandfather or whatever uh, lost. Um, and she loved the American people. She loved the country. She loved the, the president. She, you know, she would. She didn't take many personal holidays in her time as as queen. But um, but but I think five or so of them were were to America, often to Kentucky, where she would go and talk to kind of horse racing people and watch watch horse races. Um, so I think yeah, it's the kind of embodiment of history that that she became, and then also just her love of of the American people and, and America that that really forward, helped forge a, a very close um, bond. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned that area of, uh, of history. She really was both a student of history and she was history. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, having met so many uh, American presidents, probably more than anyone who's ever lived, and, uh, of course, her interaction with some pretty extraordinary British prime ministers along the way as well. Uh, you mentioned in your piece kind of the, the awe factor that even a, uh, a really cool uh, Barack Obama or a George W. Bush sort of had their own little uh, fanboy moments or, or moments of just being overwhelmed by being in the presence of the Queen. Right. And I think, I think that was, as you say, a mixture of her, her, her age, her, the kind of the history that she represented. And then also, you know, I would say, and maybe I, as the Brit, I would say this, wouldn't I? But, you know, I think that um, 
the kind of pageantry of, of, of the crown and everything, uh, even 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 uh, devoted, committed, uh, small R Republican American presidents have a have a soft spot for kind of some of the shiny objects uh, that are involved in in, in that too. Absolutely, that uh, that pomp and ceremony I think uh, goes a long way on on both sides of the uh, of the water there for sure. Uh, you also quoted in your piece uh, something that I thought was really extraordinary uh, about the Queen and uh, both her graciousness, her sense of history. Uh, you talked about her being in Philadelphia and uh, some remarks that she made there. I'm actually going to read those and then have you give us some uh, a little deeper insight in that. Uh, the Queen said, again, quoting in your piece, uh, it seems to me that Independence Day should be celebrated as much in Britain as in America. Uh, so that has to be one amazing thing for the Queen to be saying that. And then she continued, not in rejoicing at the separation of the American colonies from the British crown, but in sincere gratitude to the founding fathers of this great republic for having taught Britain a very valuable lesson. Uh, uh, go ahead and take us take us down that in terms of what that uh, really meant and what that meant uh, on both sides of the pond in terms of that kind of comment uh, coming from the Queen. Sure. Well, I, th- I think first one of the interesting things on that speech is the backstory. So that was the um, that was to mark two hundred. That was the two hundredth birthday of America. You know, nineteen seventy six. She gave that speech, and I think um, in nineteen seventy three. Uh, someone from the American government had got in touch with the British government and said, you know, would the Queen be interested in attending these celebrations? Um, And an advisor to the Prime Minister, uh, the Prime Minister at the time was Ted Heath, the Conservative Prime Minister, and um, the note from Downing Street to Buckingham Palace, uh, as I said in my piece, read, one would wish to consider whether it was right for the Queen to be associated with the celebration of a rebellion from the British Crown. So, you know, there was a sense in Britain that this was not necessarily something the Queen should be um, participating in. Um, um, and in the end, she did, probably because she felt like she should. Uh, and she, one funny little quirk of history, though, she thought it, arriving on the 4th of July would be too kind of on the nose and too much. So she did <laughs> delay a couple of days and come on the 6th of July and give that speech. Um, but in terms of the meaning of those words, I mean, I think really the context in which she gave the speech and what she, what she went on to say was actually about... Um, the way in which uh, Britain uh, transitioned from empire, um, kind of decolonized, uh, went from being an empire to a commonwealth, um, which was a process the Queen herself um, played a very kind of important role in. Uh, And, yeah, I think that was kind of what she was really referring to um, when it comes to kind of the lessons from from, from America. Yeah, fantastic. And then just give us a a quick snapshot forward. Uh, You mentioned... Uh, Charles is obviously far more uh, political in terms of where he's been, the role he's played uh, over the last number of years. Uh, how is that likely to change, or what What are you anticipating, or what are you watching for as uh, King Charles III starts to interact with President Biden and with other leaders around the world? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, he's obviously not going to play the same role as the Queen. You know, he's... he's um, He's already much older than she was, obviously, when she she, she became queen, and so he's never going to become that kind of symbol of history in the way right. in the way uh, she did. Uh, so he has kind of that working against him, and also, as you say, he's been um, much more politically involved uh, through charities and through kind of acti- activism, a lot of it on the environment and climate change and things like that. So, as a as a prince, he he has been a bit more of a divisive figure. Um, 
And I mean, he has said that now he's king, and he actually repeated this in his first address as king. Uh, he, he said that he would be sort of taking a step back from his role in those kind of areas. But I still think that will kind of leave a, leave a bit of a mark in terms of how he's perceived um, over here. Uh, I think he won't be as kind of above politics as the Queen was. Um, so he's got that going against him. Um, and, and yeah, I think just the Queen was, was, was so good at her job and, and defined the role in the modern age um, in a way that it will be difficult for him. Uh, you know, he, he won't be able to, you know, there's no point in him trying to do what the Queen did. He will have to find his own way of doing it that kind of fits with the times, fits with his age, fits with his personality. Um, and we will, you know, time will tell. Yeah, and we will continue to watch that and uh, see what he does lean into uh, using some of his talents and, and his experience. Uh, obviously, he cannot be the queen. She was the ultimate stateswoman uh, and played such a, an important role in so many things uh, in history. Uh, but we appreciate you joining us. Oliver Weissman is the deputy editor of The Spectator World. Uh, great piece in Politico. We'll post that today uh, along with our podcast later on. Uh, Oliver, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Uh, some really interesting insight there uh, from Oliver. It is a, a great piece. And the thing that uh, really strikes me uh, in terms of that moment uh, in Independence Hall uh, where the Queen spoke, where she said, look, this this is something to be celebrated uh, in Great Britain as well. Uh, because if, it, if the things that happened in Independence Hall 200 years ago hadn't happened, uh, the common the empire never would have been transformed into a commonwealth. Uh, I thought that was both great humility and great insight uh, from someone who understood leadership and that you could lead from all points on the compass. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio.